So on Wednesday morning this week, um, I actually walked to church. And I mean, I certainly live close enough that this shouldn't have been the first time that I've ever walked to church, but it was in fact the first time that I walked to church. And it was very pleasant, you know. And so as I was thinking about why I've never walked to church, because it was very pleasant to be out there walking, um, besides simply giving in to my own laziness, which quite likely has been a big part of the issue, I started to wonder if I'd maybe been listening a bit too much to the voices from around the place that tell me just how terrible Beta is, which is where we live. And maybe those voices had made me a little bit weary, had made me a bit uncomfortable, or had made me feel unsafe and told me, oh, just never go there. Now, Shannon was the one here who was a big Disney fan, and I can't claim to be a big Disney fan myself, but I did recall a Disney movie quote this week in preparation for this message today. And the quote comes from The Lion King. So there's little Simba, the young lion, and he's sitting on top of a big rock with his dad, Mufasa, and Mufasa is the lion leader, or the lion king, if you will. And he's showing Simba the spectacular view that spreads out across their land, kind of across where this lion king rules. And he says to Simba, look, Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. And little Simba says, wow. And he looks around, observing the view. And as he gazes around, his eyes fall upon this kind of dark place where the light doesn't seem to touch. And he says to his dad, but what about that shadowy place? And his dad is very quick to respond, saying, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. And then the story carries on. And today we're going to break down Esther 2, verses 1 to 18. And as we do, I want us to just hold that quote, that little exchange from the Lion King in the back of our minds, as we endeavor to see where God might be at work in the gray, in the shadowy place, in the place that is beyond our borders that we have been warned never to, be, to enter into. We're looking for God at work in the situations that can seem to take us as far from God and godliness as we can imagine. In the situation that Esther finds herself in today, in Esther 2 verses 1 to 18, is probably one of those situations. So if you want to tune with me now, we'll start reading from Esther 2 verse 1. It says, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree that he had made. So his personal attendants suggested, Let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in every province to bring these beautiful, beautiful young women to the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Hegai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who pleases the king the most will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. 
At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought into the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Hegai's care. Hegai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months of oil with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewellery she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken into the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be, be, she would be under the care of Shas, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle, Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Hegai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. So the start of this chapter here, the start of chapter 2, it does make me laugh a little. Because if you were here last week, you'll remember that we left King Xerxes in terrible distress. His wife, Queen Vashti, had refused his request, so he burned with anger. And Vashti was deposed from her position as queen on the advice of one of his advisors. Then we have chapter 2 opening with sad King Xerxes. Having calmed down from his rage, he realized he missed Vashti's company, and he was probably beginning to think that the measures that he'd taken to punish her and to punish the rest of the women throughout his kingdom were possibly a bit extreme. 
And once again, we see Xerxes turning to his attendants or his wise advisors for counsel, and they recommend that he bring in beautiful young women to vie for his favour and compete with one another to become the next queen, taking Vashti's place. And of course, we read this advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. It seems that it really doesn't take much to convince Xerxes of what to do. So the Bachelor Persia, as I'll call it, gets underway with the promise of an excellent prize. But the thing is, is that there's no choice as to whether you participate in this version of The Bachelor. Instead of choosing or being able to choose from the pool of willing women who put their names forward, a decree goes out from the palace that every beautiful young woman in the empire was required to take part. And the king even appointed agents throughout the provinces to make sure that everyone who fit this bill was being brought in. And amongst the catchment, given that it included all of his empire, was a beautiful young Jewish woman named Hadassah, who was given the Persian name Esther. Now, Esther had been raised by her older cousin Mordecai. After her own parents had been killed, Mordecai took in his young cousin and raised her as one of his own within his own family. And Mordecai's family were some of the Jews who had chosen to stay in the fortress of Susa, even after they were allowed to return freely back to their homeland. But after sorting out all these sort of details, the passage in the passage we get to the part where the grey really seems to set in. So the understanding is that the king has decreed this, the bachelor Persia, to happen. And there's really no choice for any woman whether they will participate or not. Yet this story, it rolls off the back of chapter 1 where we have just read about Vashti, the queen, who decided to refuse the king, she showed that there always was, in fact, a choice. You just have to be prepared to live with some of the serious consequences that could bring. So whilst the picture is painted that Esther was simply caught up in the whole system, that she didn't really have a choice, that she was swept along with what the king was asking, we can be left thinking, But surely there was a way to avoid this. Surely Mordecai could have done something to hide his young cousin away, to run away with her, to prevent her from being a part of this awful contest. Surely an upstanding Jewish family wouldn't let one of their own just walk on into something like this. We might even ask, is it possible that Esther that maybe Mordecai wanted this opportunity. When she gets to the palace, Esther is taken into one of the palace harems, traditionally a place where the king would keep his concubines. And she was left, along with all the other women, under the care of a eunuch named Hegai. And very quickly, Hegai took a liking to Esther. He treated her well, ensured she had food to eat, maids to look after her, and gave her the best space within the harem. Esther was already flourishing within the palace walls, it seems. But then we are told that Esther, this young Jewish girl, Hadassah, 
hadn't revealed to anyone that she'd met in the palace who she really was. She'd been concealing her true identity based on instruction from her older cousin Mordecai. Esther didn't tell anyone about her family history, about the fact that she was a Jew. No one knew. And again, we're in the grey as we consider Esther and Mordecai as sort of the budding heroes of the story, yet they appear here to be acting unfaithfully to their people and to their God. And we might ask, why didn't Esther stand up for who she was right from the get-go? Was she ashamed of her heritage, of her people, of her God? Why would Mordecai instruct you to do this? Why would he compromise her in this way? And then it comes time for Esther to appear before the king. Now the young woman, they don't get much time with the king himself. They only get one meeting. They only get one night to have their go at becoming his queen. And these women, they've already spent 12 months in the palace, in the harem, receiving all sorts of beauty treatments in preparation for this one meeting. Because in the Bachelor Persia, there's no going home. If your one meeting, your one night with the king doesn't go spectacularly well, you may not ever see the king again, but you will be kept there at the palace, this time in a different harem, and you would simply be there so that you're ready for the off chance that maybe the king remembers you and asks for you by name. You have one shot at a life as a queen, and if you don't make it, your prize is a life as a slave, really, trapped in the palace to perform for the king just as he wishes. So after her 12 months in the harem, it was Esther's turn to shoot her shot, to have her night with the king. And on the advice of Hegai, she prepared herself with only what he recommended. And she was taken in to meet King Xerxes. And surely, without a doubt, this is a shadowy place. This is the grey. As far as Esther's Jewish upbringing as far as the laws that her family lived by, this was certainly beyond their borders. This is this place that she surely should never have agreed to go. But Esther dutifully went. Dare we think it, maybe she willingly went. And Esther spent the night with the king, and she outperformed every other young woman. Verses 17 and 18 tell us the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all of his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Out of a situation so questionable, so grey, with so many shadowy places, Esther is crowned, a Jewish girl is crowned as queen over Persia. She is made the wife of King Xerxes and is given a home within the royal palace. And we think of God 
who is not mentioned in this story. And maybe we think, well, fair enough, because this doesn't seem like a place where God would even want to be. We can take up the responsibility of judge when we read the book of Esther. And we think, oh, how dare she and Mordecai do what they did. God would never accept this. Or maybe we think, oh, well, they did what they had to do. I guess God would understand. We make a judgment either way, deeming their actions terrible or deeming their actions, you know, fine considering the circumstances. But guess what? We aren't the judges. And we never were meant to be. In fact, the author seems purposely silent on this whole issue. He seems purposely silent on answering any questions that we might have like this. Because they probably weren't sure themselves which way it was swinging either. But do you know who knew which way it was swinging? Do you know who was the one who would have had to make a judgment on Esther and Mordecai's actions? It was God. And do you know what God thought of what Esther and Mordecai did here in chapter 2? No. Neither do I. No idea what he thought about it. But do you know what I do know about God in chapter 2 of Esther? where both Mordecai and Esther have made some pretty questionable choices. What I do know is that God was still working through them. We often want a black or white answer. It's easier to sit with a black or white answer. It's much harder to sit in the grey with a bit of unknown, in the shadowy place. We want things to be right or wrong, a yes or a no, good or bad. We don't like sitting with things that may be okay, that could go either way, or that are on the fence. We like to be clear-cut, and we like to know that we've got an answer to things. But our reality in this world is that so often we just don't. We just don't know. And when we just don't have an answer and we can't be clear-cut, then it would appear that often we choose our next best option as avoiding. We try to hide or to run from or to take ourselves out of the situations and we deem it beyond our borders. We deem it a place that we just won't enter into. And you know what? I think that's how we end up with a church positioned on the edge of an awesome neighbourhood with a strong desire to engage in that neighbourhood, which is so exciting, but also with the sense of struggle with the question of, gee, that's really hard. How do we even begin? Because we're not okay with the grey. We're not okay with the fact that there isn't like a clear signpost being like, do this one thing and the world will change. We're not okay with the fact that it can be a shadowy place with dark areas, and so we can choose to avoid it instead. We choose maybe just not to go there, not to engage with the struggle of what do we even do. Because it's safer and it's easier to stand aside than to be embroiled in the struggle. But let me tell you this. God just loves the grey places. 
God just loves the shadowy places, the places that we say are beyond our borders, the places that we say are a real struggle. Because you know why? That is where, in those grey shadowy places, that God meets his people. In the book of Esther, we have God who seems silent, but who is actually working tirelessly in the background, working in the grey, working for his people. Fast forward a huge number of years, and we come after a very long silent time to Jesus, God in human form. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, in Jesus' life and sacrifice, we have God who booms out of the silence, spelling out that everyone is now invited to be a part of his kingdom, to be one of God's people. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And then we fast forward another huge number of years to where we are today. And definitely in some areas, not necessarily all, God once again seems silent. There are gray areas, there are shadowy places where God just doesn't seem present. And we look at them and we think, oh, gee, that looks hard. But if we are to learn from history, if we are to learn from God's story so far, what would it tell us? It would tell us that God is in fact at work, even when we don't see him, and even in the grey, even in the shadowy places, even in the struggle, God is at work. And I can't tell you today what, if what Esther and Mordecai chose to do in chapter 2 was right or wrong. All I can tell you is that God worked with them and God worked through them. And I can't tell you today that my neighborhood is the cleanest in town, the easiest place to live with just light pouring out of it. But I can tell you that I am very confident that God is at work in my neighborhood and that God is working through the people in my neighborhood. And I'm confident of that because I'm confident that God loves the gray, that he looks out from the big rock, sees the shadowy place and goes, great, that's a part of my kingdom. In chapter 2 of Esther, we don't see God. And so we're presented with this choice in the gray. Do we trust that God is working or do we choose to believe that God has abandoned because we just don't know about the gray. We just don't have the answers about the gray. So we have to choose between trusting that God has it in hand or between believing that he might have abandoned the story. With Esther being a historical book, we have the benefit of being able to read on and find that God was in fact at work. Never once had he abandoned the story, even when things were very gray. And as we look out to our community, it can sometimes be a similar experience. When we don't see God, we are presented with this choice in the gray. Do we trust that God has it in hand? Or do we choose to believe that maybe this time God has abandoned the story? 
when we don't have the answers about the grey, when we're not sure about the shadowy places, we have this choice to make between God having it in hand or believing that he might have abandoned. And while we don't yet know how the story of us in our community or the story of this world even ends, we do have history recorded in Scripture to stand upon. And Scripture tells us again and again and again of a God who worked throughout the grey, of a God who never once abandoned any of his people, a God who was always at work. And so I think that we need to learn to love the grey too. When we observe our surroundings, when we're looking out from that rock and we see the shadowy places, let our response be, huh, that's always been a bit beyond our borders. I wonder what God is doing there. Shall we go and see? I found on Wednesday that the simple act of walking to church was an excellent opportunity to do just this because it got me out of my comfy car and into the neighbourhood, into the way of where other people live and interact, into other people's stories. On a slightly bigger level, even this Guess Who's Coming for Dinner event is a great opportunity. Who knows? You might get invited to my place in Beta. But it's a simple chance to get out of your comfy routine and into the way of where other people live and interact, into their stories. Then even bigger again, as a church, we take part in these community dinners once a month, and that's an awesome opportunity. They are a great starting place. I mean, for one, you get a free dinner. It's like a bonus. But you also get out of your comfy homes and into the neighbourhood, into where other people's lives interact and into other people's stories. And then even bigger again, I mean, we could just go forever, these endless possibilities, but it's been mentioned that there might be an opportunity to support our community, even our wider city, with meals. There are approximately 400 meals that Ministry of Social Development support and fund just for the south of Hamilton area. And they've asked just generally for help with that. And what a cool opportunity that could be for us to get out of our quite comfy worlds and out into our neighbourhood, into other people's lives where they interact and into other people's stories. We are a church family that has so much potential and so much already happening amongst the things that, things that go on here. Yet there's also more, I mean, there's always more that is to come. And most of it, I mean, a lot of it is just out there in the grey, out there in sometimes shadowy places, out there beyond what can be our current borders. But it is in the grey that we learn faith. It is out there in the grey, in the shadowy places that we learn to trust God more. And it is to the grey that we need to say, huh, that's always been a bit beyond our borders. I wonder 
what God is doing there? Shall we go and see? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who is always working, who is always present, who is always moving, even when we don't see it. And God, we thank you that when you look out from your big rock and you observe what is your kingdom, the shadowy places, the gray places, God, you are so pleased that they are yours. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with a boldness to walk into those shadowy places, to walk out into the gray, carrying your light, bearing your name, Holy Spirit, would you kind of rough us up inside so that we become uncomfortable with our comfy lives and routines and worlds and let us seek the grey, let us seek getting out there into other people's lives no matter how uncomfortable or scary it could be. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the opportunities that we can step into? Things as small as walking to church. Things as small as stopping to talk to a neighbour. Things as small as having dinner with those in your community or those in your church family. Holy Spirit, would you shake us up so that these would be the things that we desire? Lord God, you are so good, so compassionate, so full of love. And everyone... Everyone deserves to know that, God. So would you empower us with your Holy Spirit to take that love, to share it with those that we meet, to take it into the grey, into the shadowy places. Let us run forth to those areas that are beyond our borders. Let us get on board, Lord, with what you're already doing there. Thank you, God. Amen.